Hey everybody, it's your boy Sleep here, and I got my co-host Grizz on the mic with me today. We are back with another episode of the Thrash Talk Podcast. Dude, we are stoked to be here, and man, do we have a good one for you today with none other than snowboarding legend Bob Klein. Bob is a shredding sassy ambassador and an all-around epic dude. Keith, tell us about him. Yeah, man, I'm super stoked for this combo. It was so much fun. And Bob's just, uh, he's a funny guy. He's got stories from all the way back in the day. You know, Bob is one of those OG snowboarders that was doing it before resorts were allowing it. He was a big pusher of, of the pipe scene and all that kind of stuff. And he was actually one of the first agents out there to be representing snowboarders at the professional level. So really cool conversation, had an absolute blast. There's some funny stories in there and I'm stoked for everybody to, you know, get to experience Bob on the level we did. You. I don't know. It's like road rage when I just took someone to the airport really early this morning and somebody not, I mean, <clears throat> you can look at uh, getting cut off one of two ways. You can say I got cut off or they just changed their lane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Today yeah, sure. I got cut off because it was pretty dangerous. The guy would have clipped me if I didn't hit the brakes because it was, it was that tight of a gap. So, you know, but um I hit my brights and what am I supposed to do? Flip the guy off, challenge him to a roadside fight because <laughs> no matter what I do, the, he flipped me off. He just sat there and held his, his finger up in his back window so I could see it. And, you know, that's some people get really pissed off at that stuff. And I just don't think any of it's really worth getting pissed off. So back to my reference to or or relation to snowboarding, I used to think it was really important to say things to maybe affect change, but it doesn't really matter because I'm not in charge and it's not my sport and I don't own it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I've, I've sat on a lot of committees in my day and been one of those people who advocated for the athletes for a long time. And I, uh, I recently, this summer, actually, one of the biggest weights off my shoulder shoulders ever was stepping down from that position. Um, cause I just realized it was an uphill battle and I was getting absolutely nowhere. And I kind of was just tired of all the thought that goes into it and the stress, the management of that and, and realizing like, Hey, one, I'm doing this for free. Like my time is valuable to me. It's like one of my most valuable assets. And two, like, what are we actually getting done here? It's generally you're sitting in meetings and it just kind of conversations just go in circles and then very few things ever actually get done. So I can relate. I can relate wholeheartedly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, like I said, I think that's everywhere. It's, um, it was the last company I worked for the cooler company was pretty much the same kind of shit people say a bunch of stuff and they can't back it up. And I think that's something that's helped me personally, because I've never been that good of a snowboarder and I've never been, you know, that great of a uh, advocate for the sport other than going out and trying to get scary as to let us up. But um, I just feel like nobody really gives a shit that much. <laughs> <laughs> And they just do what they do. It's kind of take over, and and 
I, I used to feel like it was so important to be part of all those meetings. And, you know, when I was the technical director in 1989, it was definitely a, a lot of what I could, I just made me think of that when you said sitting in a lot of meetings and getting nothing done, like sitting in six hour meetings with a bunch of euros in a super hot room. And, and everybody's like, okay, next event, we'll do this. And, or we'll, let's communicate. Actually, in those days, there was no, no communication really between events. It was, I guess, phone calls that cost three or four bucks a minute. <laughs> quick communication. But just nothing ever got done. And then working with companies over in Europe, I'd go over there for meetings and everybody would talk about everything to do. And, then they'd never do it. And I don't know, you, you just kind of get used to it after a while. And it feels like you have to stay involved because what if you don't? So I can, again, relate to when you finally do step away, it's probably a big relief. Yeah. Did you feel like some sort of, I don't know, well, obviously relief, but almost like that FOMO, like fear of missing out at first when you kind of stepped away from those, those positions? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, not, not necessarily like technical director stuff. That was a long time ago and I was doing other things too. So it didn't really, didn't really affect my path. Um, it was just more like this political thing that I felt for the longest time was so important to hang on to, you know, I could take all this credit for all kinds of stuff and people do, you know, if you just look at Burton or Sims or certain writers, they love to talk about what they've done. And, and, uh, I feel like I've contributed and, and that's why it was hard to, to let go. You know, like in 1985, I set up the first, single pole breakaway slalom, you know, cause back then everybody wanted the double panels. And I kept saying, you know, in world cup ski racing, it's single, single pole breakaway and breakaways were relatively new, you know, cause it was bamboo before that and breakaways changed everything. And single pole breakaway was also a big change too, from the panels, you didn't rip your arm off or you didn't get your head stuck in it and you could take it more straight through the gate line. And so it was really important to implement that into snowboarding. And Tom Sims was not into it. Jake wasn't into it because they wanted their banners to their panels to show up everywhere. And I said, well, that it's easy, you know, a slalom has uh you know, hairpins and it's, it's a, you got to go through two gates. So why don't you just make the outside gate, your stupid panel gates? Nobody's hitting those. So that was the solution and it worked, you know, for a little bit. And I just think that that was the evolution. So you try to try to continue that stuff, you know, when you show up at events and the organizers are telling everybody that, Oh uh, yeah, you know, we would sorry we're not having the mogul event because we didn't do what we said we were going to do, you know, and Breckenridge in 89 that 
uh, Christian Savio, who still runs events over there and still part of the part of the whole scene. He was like, "Oh yeah, right now they're going through the buckle piece and they're making they're making the buckle piece so that we have a good buckle piece when we get there because we had to cancel the one at Breckenridge because the mountain was like, "Yeah, fuck you guys, you know we're not we're not helping you." Because Dave Achenbach was like, yeah, there's there's moguls up there. How come we're not having the mogul event? There's moguls right up there. And and the mountain staff was like, yeah, you can do it, but we're not helping you. You can carry all your banners and all your shit up there on your own. And so we can't. Yeah, and then the Euro guy's like, oh, yeah, right now they're going through in Europe and Austria. It's going to be perfect. And we get there and they go, yeah, the uh, yeah. Due to the conditions, we can't do it. So we're gonna have a future shock event. And they built like a two foot kicker, and had a freestyle contest. They changed the rules in the middle of everything, you know. In Breckenridge, in the Super G, a bunch of Euros were seen for running the course instead of slipping it, and and I that was my mistake because I didn't have gatekeepers set up, so. So I told him at the meeting, you guys are going to all get DQ'd at the next event if you do that stuff. And we get to Austria and I had gatekeepers, wrote down all the bib numbers, started pulling bibs off these guys as they were coming through. And they just threw a fit and everybody was against me and they decided to have a big, a big uh, vote. You know, I'm like, the rules are clear. You know, you can't do that. Oh, well, you know, this one time we'll just make them pay a fine of of whatever it was in in uh, Austrian shillings. It was like 50 bucks a person. And I said, well, I'm going to go tell all my American friends to go take a free run because they'll pay 50 bucks to get a, a free run in a World Cup course. And they're like, no, no, from now on they're DQ'd. So I just was like, this is bullshit. And then they said, let's have a vote. And they got these guys that were like groomers or something, you know, just local mountain dudes. And it was me and four other guys. And I'm sitting there trying to tell them in English that this is a really important vote. We got to DQ these guys. We have to show the IOC that we're serious about the Olympics. We really want to you know, have a good sport to present. And this is such a big vote. You know, this is a turning point because we have to stick to the rule book. And they just all laughed at me and outvoted me. And, and so I was like, all right, great. So we're collecting all this cash from all these guys and you guys are corrupt because you're taking the cash and I don't know what you're doing with it. And the rules are being broken. So how about now you give me some of the cash because Shit's expensive here in Austria. So they gave me money. You know, so, you know, long story short, it's like that kind of shit can really frustrate you and it can turn you away from all of it. And I think that one of the biggest things that helped me out was separating having a snowboard on my feet and riding compared to being involved in all the politics. Sure, sure. I mean, that's kind of why we all do it, right? Yeah, that's what everyone says, but it's a lot of bullshit. A lot of people don't. <laughs> I mean, I see it. I'm almost 60 years old, and I can't believe 
everywhere I go, nobody does anything that they say they're going to do. They have an incredible bike path system here in Denver. And when I moved back here in 2017, I said, I'm going to commute to my work every, at least three days a week. I don't care what the weather is. And, and I got an e-bike and went 12 miles each way. And I swear every fucking storm, I'm the only guy out there. I don't know what's up with people. I thought Colorado was hardcore winter athletes. And, and for sure when I'm riding my bike and I think I'm a good athlete, you know, hauling ass on my road bike, some guy flies by me and like I'm standing still. But in the winter time, people don't go out. If I go yeah. snowboarding, you're not on the mountain. Nobody ever hikes around in the backcountry like they say they do. I don't see it. I mean, yeah. in certain places, I'm sure it's all zooed out, but I try not to go to where the people are. And I don't, I just don't see it. I was in Tahoe with my dad all last winter and we had, incredible snow and i was out on the bike path on my studded snow tire bike and hiking in waist deep shit just out around town and nobody's out ever (laughs) is your family still based in tahoe city yeah that's amazing man all all those years up there uh you know a staple uh that's amazing that's cool to hear yeah we moved there in 1974 my dad won't leave the house. My mom, they should have left probably 20 years ago, but they, uh, my mom died in the house a couple of years ago and my dad will soon. I'm sure he's, he'll be 92 in July. Yeah, it's a lot. That's heavy, man. Um, but, uh, but I mean, there's a lot of history there and, uh, and a lot of history in the industry there. It was really cool. I was listening to, uh, you on the Powell movement podcast a few weeks ago and just to kind of, uh, hear, you know, why you guys moved up there, why that, that was the area that, that your family selected to move, uh, being that it was a mountain town with a hockey rink, uh, you know, back from the, the 60 Olympics. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's a story that I think a lot of kids wish that they had lived. You know, it's a story that a lot of kids uh, growing up um, from the Northwestern um, uh, Pennsylvania, you know, I, I would have died to to move to a mountain town when I was growing up and not in one. So uh, really cool. Uh, and uh, in the Olympics, you know, in 60, being at Squaw and, and that history there to, to kind of go there and really, um, you know, kick off snowboarding up in Tahoe. That's uh that's, that's pretty amazing. Oh, I mean, I just feel so lucky to, to be who I am. I, it's amazing to have this life. It just seems like a big movie to me where there are so many people that are so much less fortunate than me in so many different ways, you know, whether it's their snowboarders that struggle or whatever it is, or they're, you know, people in another country that can't find food or water. Um, it's, I just can't even believe that I've lived this long with such luxury and so many, you know, lucky things to, to witness and participate in. It's really cool. And my parents were, were great for that. My dad was, as you heard, I guess, on the other podcast that he was a, a physician and, uh, just 
built up a good practice in the right place in the right time and sold it and and wanted to hang out with the kids and became a hippie at the same time. So it was really, really great for us. But it's funny, too, because since my mom died, I look back on um, all of that, my relationship with my family and my parents, and it's not exactly what I thought it was, um, you know, not necessarily my parents, although there's some aspects to that too, that are, that are weird, you know? And so I guess it just goes to, to show that everybody has their own issues in life, but, you know, in spite of all that, I just feel so lucky and Tahoe is, I'm pretty much a, a snob and an elitist when it comes to <laughs> I, I mean, living here in Colorado is great at my age and my ability and where my body is and everything. It's fine because it's, it's uh, you know, nice mountains and good quality snow, but it's pretty much a joke. It's pretty flat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I live in Colorado also, um, and I'm up in the mountains and, you know, the, the standard opinion that I get from all the folks up here, especially the locals is Denver's almost like its own other state, you know, it's flat. People have a very different mindset than folks up here. You know, you're saying how people don't necessarily go out in the cold down there. We, I see, you know, I live by, by uh, a I'd well, I mean, I Breckenridge, and I don't see anybody. I would, I'd bring my mountain bike for the Dew Tour uh, ten years ago, and go riding all around. And I'm the only guy out there on a bike. I guess Chad Otterstrom rides around too. Yeah, yeah. I actually saw Chad last night. Um, Freaking rad, dude. Rad guy. At the end of the day, like, talk about a go getter. I mean, he don't care if yeah, he's solo he's, or with a pack. I went splitboarding with him a couple of years ago and I, I've done it a couple of times on my own and, and I just, his videos are so rad and he's such a cool guy. And, and I just asked him if I could go with him one time and we went up by level and pass and he was just super cool. He goes, Oh man, if I knew you were this strong, we would have gone somewhere else. But, <laughs> but just, you know, that kind of connection with somebody who kind of knows, you know, he's been in the mountains long enough, but it's one thing to, to be a Summit County local and say, oh, yeah, I'm a mountain local in Colorado, but it's kind of bullshit because it's, it's like everything's right there. People aren't really going in the back country. They're going in the side country stuff. And so a guy like Chad Otterstrom to me is, is awesome. Man. The ultimate G, right? Oh, I mean, he's just probably one of the best natural riders out there in any terrain. He's so good and just so smooth and clean and just kind of a humble, nice guy. But, but I, you know, we were talking all kinds of shit. He likes to call them the REIs or something like that. <laughs> the REIers or forget yeah. what, but it's classic, you know, because we're, as we were hiking up, and it's right there by the tunnel. So the access is pretty easy, but there still weren't more than 10 people up there. And they were all, you know, those REI gear people. <laughs> Out of all the mountain towns in Colorado, who do you think are the most like go-getters? You know, is it Winter Park? Is it, you know, the Rowing Fork Valley? Is it 
down in oh, Telluride. I, I mean, I'm an old guy, so I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know. I think back back in the eighties and the nineties, I think it was just a free for all and wherever the good snow was. And Summit County wasn't usually it. Although a lot of people lived in Summit County just for the same reasons they do now, the easy access and close proximity to Denver, I think makes it really attractive for people. Yeah. I try to stay away from Summit County, especially on the weekends. I'm, I'm over in the Roaring Fork area. Um, my, and- my guess is if you go to, if you go to Telluride or, you know, Aspen's pretty cool. There's some good backcountry stuff there that I haven't been to, but I know Doran Laybourne and Chad now is, you know, a local there and he got yep. Summit County. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, I think every place has their scene, but I just think in general, like backing up to my earlier statement of talking shit about people in general, (laughs) that if, if you go to any of these mountain towns, there's always a little local scene, but how many people is it really in the big scheme of things when you, want to put numbers up and say, well, this is the industry and this is the sales of the industry. And then you see 10 people up there hiking and you're like, what the hell's going on? You know, it's who are these people? So my theory is that the way it's evolved and part of that is ESPN and NBC's fault and Pete Foley's fault and, and FIS and all kinds of, you know, personal opinions about all that stuff. But but the reality is a fan base was never built and maybe there never could be because it's not that interesting of a sport for a fan base to be built. But I kind of thought it could be something promoted like NASCAR in a way where your drivers are, are king and they're so important. And especially like border cross has that aspect that you could, you could have. I tried to tell Nate Holland when he was my client, and Westcott too, that we should be pitching like, fuck it. Snowboarders hate you guys anyway. So why not <laughs> let's just go out and be billboards? Let's put together a pitch deck and see if we can put Like I wanted to have, I wanted to have all these teams where yeah. you would have like a, a DC team or a Burton team or a, you know, Chevy team, who cares what, who the sponsor is and just total billboards and have like a border cross series that was all based on these teams. And then your driver would be like the important guy on the team. And nobody really gave a shit about that stuff, but you know, it's, it's stuff like that that I think has really changed the sport to where, and I, I know I got, I'm like really, uh, abstract in how I talk, but I try to try to tie it all back to the original point. And my, my opinion is that people show up now for a week long vacation, whether it's a college reunion or, you know, a work thing or just friends that have a long, you know, history together and they go on a ski vacation. And they get to the rental shop and they look at each other in the line and they go, you skiing or snowboarding? And then they get their equipment and they go get drunk and they hang out in the hot tub and they take a few runs in between. 
And I believe that that's the general experience of skiing and snowboarding and snowboarding. Hot tub time machine, man. That's what I think of. Hot tub time machine all the way. Snowboarding has turned into the ski experience and it's a four year Olympic sport when it comes to competition. It's not really like who watches the X games anymore. It's I, I watched some of it last year, but it's pretty obvious that nobody's paying any attention to it, especially mainstream America. Nobody cares about that shit other than every four years. And I think it you know, back to your question of what scene is the most hardcore. It just made me think of when I was in Park City a couple of years ago, and I told what I just told you to my friend David Alden, who I don't know if you know his name, but he has a long history in the sport. And he he got so aggressive with me, it was hilarious. He was so pissed off. He's like, you're so fucking wrong. You're so wrong. Now, every mountain has a scene. This Park City has a scene. I'm just like, yeah, 50 guys. Like, yeah. Who gives yeah. a shit? Nobody cares. And once summer comes around, those guys are missing. Who knows where they end up, right? Yeah, they're gone. Next mountain. That's the funny thing about Colorado. It's filled with people from the Midwest and from the East Coast. And the smart ones keep going west. (laughs) 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 End up in Utah or Tahoe or west. Yeah, I'm originally from Utah and, you know, I was a season pass holder my whole life skiing and snowboarding, but there was a good portion, you know, four or five years where I had passes primarily just to access certain peaks so that I could go off and do my own thing um, and kind of get away from all of the nonsense, the crowds, the lifts, the lift lines, you know, the Timpanogos mountain range is so cool. Like I spent a lot of time up there on my own, just kind of touring through the backcountry, And, you know, this was like relatively pre split board. So it was snowshoes and boot packing, you know, and you were really earning those, you know, if you were lucky, you got like 25 turns in a day and they were sick and they were epic. But a lot of the times it was boot packing to get like 10, you know, 10 turns, but it was like some of the best turns of the week kind of deal. Yeah, well, um, so I have a massive appreciation for those for the folks. late 70s and early 80s snowboarding. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. what I wanted to ask. I, Keith, continue, Keith. Please. I wanted to flip, okay, Bob, I wanted to flip that on you and and looking at Tahoe in the late 70s, 80s when you were kicking it off, you know, uh, you know, we've heard the half pipe story. Um, but before snowboarding opened at the mountains, what were you guys doing? Were you guys how often were you hiking? How often were you in the backcountry? Or, or was it more of the city, um, uh, the cityscape? Uh, well, I mean, the backcountry is about 150 yards from town, you know, <laughs> in all sure. directions except the lake. And so, you, the it was like I said earlier, it was just about finding good snow. And I, I just remember in uh, the late 70s, early 80s, it was about winter sticks. You know, we all rode winter sticks and, and certain friends like Alan Arnbrister was, was pretty much the high energy motivator that would go anywhere. Hey, let's go to Rifle Peak, which was above Incline Village and drop in on the backside. There's a cabin back there and we can stay there. And we did that and it took us like, you know, four hours to, to get there and stayed overnight and hiked you know, for those 25 turns, 
the next day in a cool bowl that was north facing with good snow. And, you know, it was just, it was pretty haphazard and carefree. And when things developed a little bit, like with the Tahoe City half pipe, I was, I was no good. I had no style. I couldn't really get out of it too, too well. You know, everyone else was way better than I was. And, and I just felt like it was a waste of my time. Plus Armbruster was really militant about keeping it in shape. And so, you know, it was like, you'd spend so much time just smoothing the stupid thing out and drop in once and slam in the flat bottom and go, this sucks, you know? So I would go next to the, the pipe, there was a little powder field, so you could go make turns there, but it was pretty flat and not that interesting. So I just started going up to Mount Rose by myself and hiking around that whole area, which Armbrister was into also before we really did the pipe stuff. We were hiking around Mount Rose because that was always good snow. And I don't, I don't know why. I guess. There was uh, shuttle runs in Incline Village, the Apollo shuttle runs, and we would do those. And and interestingly enough, in probably 1982 or something, we saw Steve Cathy, who uh, was a pro skater for GNS back in the 70s, and he and his A-team buddies were, were doing the same shuttle runs. And so I've known that guy forever, and it's really cool when when you think back to those those connections you know that that's that's the cool stuff for sure um but i don't know i was just telling my girlfriend that that maybe that's part of my opening statement to you guys is i'm trying not to be so like blunt about stuff because really life is so great and there's so many great aspects to it and to just talk shit about a bunch of stuff that didn't go the way you wanted it to is, is, uh, you know, it's, it's better to me to, to move forward. And I guess that point is that to reminisce too much is like, I don't know. It's, it's sad in a way because, um, uh, I, I'd like to do a podcast and just tell a bunch of stories because podcasts these days are interviews and that's fine. But I, I'd like to just, all these people always go, man, you got the funniest stories. You got, you've been to all these places and done all these things. And, and so I think, Oh, that would be fun to just tell stories. But then I think nobody cares. And so what's the point? That's like a, just a self-serving ego boost type of thing. And it's not important. Why do it? And then, And then I get into the part where, um, you know, if I tell a story, certain people are going to get all uptight about it. And they're stupid for getting uptight about it because who gives a shit what happened 30 years ago? Dude, you have you have such a good relationship with Palmer for so long, right? Like what? Like, okay, interview question. What's the funniest story you got about Palmer (laughs) that you can share that you can share? Oh, well, I could share all of them according to, I mean, I haven't talked to him in a long time and he doesn't want to engage these days for some reason, but um, he did say thanks when I sent him a birthday text this year. But um, so, you know, the, 
it's funny because he said when he was reading, um, I don't know, Axel Rose's book or something like that, he was saying how his book was going to be just so much more open and he's going to tell all these stories. And we made the documentary and it's not quite as open as I would have liked it. I think it could have been a really cool um, psych analysis on, on this incredibly talented athlete. Um, but he was, you know, your own ego surfaces and he, he really wanted to protect himself. I think when it came down to it with the final edit stuff. So anyway, funniest story with Palmer. Um, I mean, so many in this, the summer of 94, just that whole summer was probably the funniest story because we were in Europe for six weeks starting the company and we spent time going between Zurich and Salzburg and spending a fair, you know, like going back to, to close to Zurich for the weekends because that's where the money guy, Jörg, lived and he had a condo at the time right on the lake on Volensee and boats, you know, he had a boat. So would always go drink beer and hang out in the boat and, you know, swim and shit like that. But the whole summer was filled with ridiculous stories of, you know, the, the Swiss guy, his family owned this huge meat company and that's where they made all their money. And he's a huge guy. You know, the fucking Swiss butcher. He's like 6'4", you know, 200 and something pounds. Just a huge dude. And we're like second day in Europe on this six-week thing to try to get the company going. And we're out on the boat and they're like talking shit to each other, Palmer and, and the Swiss guy. And, you know, as guys do, I guess. And... They started like talking shit and Palmer pushed him over because like, he was sitting on the sitting on the edge of the boat or something and he pushed him and as he's going backwards, he pulls Palmer in with him with one hand. <laughs> and they're just like, you know, next thing you know, the guy's just treading water with one hand and dunking Palmer with the other hand, you know, pulling him up. And he's just like <gasps> so, we're sitting in the boat. Should we jump in and rescue him? The, Swiss guy's going to kill him. <laughs> you know, so that was you know, the beginning of just like a whole summer of shit talk with, with our Swiss partner and just ridiculous, you know, cause we would, we were staying at his house and Palmer never wanted to eat like local stuff. He's such a weirdo anti-euro he he only wanted to go to certain places so move and pick was okay move and pick was fine yeah move and pick right down the road that had a really nice buffet and but Jurg was pissed every time we wanted to go to move and pick because it was basically at the end of the family property and but every night he'd give us a hundred swiss francs here here go get dinner go get dinner and you know so the, the food stuff was always funny and just, I don't know, sitting in the car with, with Maddie Goodman and Palmer and the art designer guy, the four of us spent a lot of time driving around and 
Palmer and Maddie were just like, they loved to do what they called darting their, each other's sunglasses. So just stick his finger in his ass and put a little bit of shit on the guy's <laughs> What? Stupid stuff like that. Like stuff that has a, has a more sensitive, in touch with my femininity type of man, I just look at it and go, man, snowboarding, it's pretty bad with all the, the, the male, volatile male ego shit that's going on constantly it, and just being part of that whole scene being in a band with palmer was ridiculous one time we played in a bowling alley for the asr trade show in san diego and he goes in the bat in the women's bathroom because they he, he and holmes would get totally fucked up before all the events or all the the shows and i've gotten this big fight with the this heavy dude, you know, I think that was probably part of that, that pal podcast too, but just, just ridiculous. Palmer didn't care about who was in front of him. I, I think some of the, the funnier stories for me was just working with him, you know, and he would say, tell those fucking guys, I want a million dollars. Now they're not paying anybody a million dollars. Yeah, well, I'm fucking John Palmer and going to to a Red Sox game with him one time. And he's all pissed off because the outfielder makes so much money and how come he doesn't? And I'd say, well, it's not really about him. It's about the logo on the front. And he's just part of the piece to keep that logo together. <laughs> Yeah, he seemed like a wild animal. I've never actually met him, um, but I've seen a lot about him. You know, growing up in the 90s and, and getting into snowboarding in the early 2000s, it was like, dude, Sean Palmer, Sean Palmer. This guy's a freaking nut that'll send it off of anything on any device he could get his hands on. Yeah, with um, great style and yeah. vision and speed and no training and no, you know, just cold right off the couch do all that stuff and i i mean i i love the guy so much for for his uh charisma and his chutzpah to just be able to go fuck you guys pay me you know one of the last things he tried to do was um i guess that was for uh not torino Maybe it was Torino. Maybe it was, maybe it was Vancouver when he was trying to come back or something. I don't remember, but he was trying to get Monster to give him a million dollar incentive if he won the gold in the Olympics. And it was just a joke, you know, like no way. They're not going to do it. I, I've done a bunch of, I've been dealing with those guys since day one. I did their first contract for Andy Finch with Hanson's Energy Drink. And, you know, once you get a feel for what's going on in the business side of things, it's like, yeah, that's not realistic. But then here comes this guy saying, fuck you. Are you working for me or not? Go out there and fucking tell him who I am. Go out there and tell him why. And then I would and would end up getting paid pretty good money on a bunch of stuff, but still not near what he thought his value was and probably not what his value is or was. But 
you know, that's the reality of ESPN and NBC and other responsible parties for not building up a fan base. Interesting because you know, at times you're, you're actually building more bridges than you're burning down. And then at other times you're burning more bridges than you're building. So, so his style, I mean, we see it out there elsewhere, but, but nobody quite the same. Um, do you think ah, if, if, if he changed slightly, would it have, um, would it have blown up more, you know, well, or do you think his style was perfect for, for the time? Um, I mean, for the video game for it all, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it was just, a lot of fast paced stuff, you know, try to find deals and make them as big as possible. And like that Activision video game deal, uh, Peter Carlisle had a lot to do with it. My, my old partner. And, you know, at at the time it was really interesting because they had done some, I forget what the company is that, that was doing demographics, data collecting, but they, um, they figured out that Palmer had a more popular name than Tony Hawk did going into those video games. So, um, the Sean Palmer snowboard game might've been, you know, Tony Hawk's versions had things been a little bit different. So it's, it's like a really hard abstract thing to talk about because, if Sean wasn't the way he was, would he have had the success he had? If he was more a certain way, would he have had more or less success? Who knows, you know, but it's fascinating to have the conversation. And I think it's not as much about his behavior as much as it is about alcoholism and drugs, you know, because I feel like he for so long could perform at the highest level under the influence or, you know, hung over or whatever. And, and to me, that's an incredible thing. And that to me also stems from a psychological thing, you know, his family upbringing, he didn't have a family. He had a mom who, you know, said she was too busy trying to work to support his sports habits to raise him. So he, got dumped on his grandma who was a sweetheart, but he never knew his dad. And his dad came around after he became a famous snowboarder and tried to, to hang around. I remember seeing him at a trade show one time and he's wearing uh, like a world championships jacket that I think Mike Chantry gave him. And Palmer's like, look at that fucking asshole over there. Just thinking he can walk into my life. Like, fuck that guy, you know? And, and so, you know, there's all these things. And, and I tried to talk to Sean about that stuff because I came from such a different family background and I felt like I, you know, had the answers for him and he never really wanted to talk about that stuff too deeply because he just, you know, he seemed to have it all figured out in his own mind. And, so, you know, I think he, if he would have done like the green screen shit or whatever the stuff was where they put on a suit and put all these dots on him for the video game and he went down there and spent a month doing it, maybe it would have been different. But he got so bored with stuff so quickly that you just couldn't keep up with the guy. 
You know, he started a snowboard company and within a year he's like, yeah, I fucking hate snowboarding. Telling people in public that he hates snowboarding because it's boring and that it's all about mountain biking now. <laughs> like, dude, we just started a company. You got to <laughs> talk it up. You got to promote snowboarding. Would, well, and like, then you I, have the contrast of I'm someone like doing bigger, better things. I'm moving on to, to bike racing. Right. So, right. Sorry. And he was a phenomenal bike racer too. That was the crazy thing was you put him on anything to pilot and it was like all of a sudden he was a savant on it almost. Yeah. Well, I cut you off. You were going to ask a, a question. I don't know if you remember. Oh, I was just going to compare him to someone like Seth Westcott, like such a stark contrast, right? Like Seth, in my opinion, just what I've known of, you know, watching him over the years and stuff, he seemed a bit more reserved and, um, a little more, had a little bit more like humility at the end of the day, but was still an absolute beast in the industry. Uh, am I, am I like incorrect? And in, no, in no, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, Seth is a, I don't know about reserve necessarily, cause he's a pretty outgoing, engaging personality and just a really, I, I really, He's one of my close friends. I haven't seen him or hung out with him in a few years, but I always miss him because now he's married with a kid and stuff and between Canada and Maine all the time. But I I think he's just a guy that um, probably is a little bit more um, introspective in terms of like goal setting and stuff like that. You know, where Palmer's just like goes out, I'm going to fucking go do that. And maybe in a way just to create a stir. And Westcott, I think, is more of the guy that's a little more calculated. Just, you know, he knows he has talent, but he's just like sets a goal and finds a way to achieve it. And probably the the 2010 Olympics is my favorite because – um, the U S team had set up a house in park city for the border cross team to train and live in for a month or two. And, oh yeah, by the way, the today show is going to come in and out, you know, so reality type thing. You know? And, and Westcott was like, I'm not going there. And that was after that was actually after he bailed on, the Mount Hood camp in May and the Mount Hood camp in May to, to what he told me, I had never been to it, but what he told me was it's just a glorified wax test. You know, I don't, I don't need that. Fuck that. And yeah, so he blew that off and that, you know, raised question marks and eyebrows with the team and other, other competitors. And, and then all summer long, we, we were going on this uh, Canadian tour, it was for Coca-Cola or something like that. And it was just me and him driving to these places and one in Quebec and one in, in uh, near Toronto and, and then Whistler. And so we spent a lot of time in the car and traveling and stuff and hanging out. And, and he was just like, yeah, man, I'm, you know, Foley's always calling me, trying to get me to, do this, do that and participate. And why aren't I part doing this? And I just, you know, I don't need to go to the center of excellence. I've got 
I got my paddle, my stand up paddle board that I'm paddling in creeks in Maine and I'm surfing and I'm riding bikes, and whatever is his program was. And he's like, the last thing I want to do is go to some house in park city and where the first two weeks, everyone there is going to blow all their energy wad just in their fucking ego positioning. And he's like, I want nothing to do with that. But he's like, my focus is on February 11th or whatever the date was for, for the Vancouver Olympics. He goes, that's all I care about. And I'm putting every bit of energy in. And I said, sounds like a good plan to me. You know, I'll talk to, you know, so I'll, so I'm, I'm on board with that. And then I started getting phone calls from the team and why won't Westcott participate? What's he up to? That's what the hell, what the hell? And they were all down on, and then he goes and wins the Olympics. And first thing those fuckers said to him was, "You do whatever you want. Do do whatever you want." Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like Keith, a fine balance between training. Yeah, I mean, so I've been, you know, on the para circuit since it's uh, since its beginning, and to be able for me to be able to like stay at the top and be able to compete with the young riders that are absolute beasts and still be not only physically competitive, but also mentally competitive or emotionally, I have to have that time to be able to do what I love to do, whether it's spend time with my family or go out and surf or skate or, or mountain bike or any of the other stuff. I I'm one of those people also who doesn't love to be like in a four wall gym. I would much rather be getting my exercise outside. So you know, my team does give me quite a bit of leeway these days, knowing that I've been able to perform time and time again with my, my preference of training, you know, it's, it's a fine balance between, you know, um, keeping that mental game in check for me, uh, as well as staying physically fit enough to be able to do my job at the end of the day. Cause kind of like to Seth Westcott's point, like if I spend the first two weeks in a house, just like burning my brain on what everyone else is doing around me or getting caught up in any of that mix. Like I just get burnt out and want to go home versus actually wanting to do the job that I'm there to do, which a lot of times is put down numbers, whether it's on snow or in the gym or whatever the case may be. So I'm generally like an in and out kind of guy. I try not to spend all my time around my team because I love my team. They're like a family, but at the same time, you love them and you hate them sometimes like a family, you know, not to say I hate my teammates, but, uh, yeah, it, you become like brothers and sisters after a few weeks. You're like, can I just go do anything else? I want to go fishing. Can I go fishing? Like, can I just get away from you guys or, you know, yeah. Um, well, and then someone always wants to tag along. I, I, I don't know how it is, um, for you personally and how it's evolved and developed. I imagine it's changed for you over the years, but just in general, what I see with that, and, and it's, I'm trying to be as uh, maybe complimentary and positive as I can, you know, you're straddling a funny fence when you're talking about U.S. team, because it, it, especially if you think about the old controversy between ISF and FIS, and I think that the U.S. team um, probably has a pretty well-proven formula for success. 
uh, more recently than in a long time ago in the beginning of everything because back in the I guess in the late 80s early 90s when when FIS started to come into the to the picture uh, the U.S. ski team wasn't really that good I'm trying to think of who might have been good Lindsey Vaughn or Kildow at the time maybe was okay but she was even later than that you know the 90s we didn't really have a good U.S. ski team so um I think that was they had like peekaboo street right she was yeah, I mean, she was a ripper one-offs. there were a few one-offs yeah. that could could rip a, a win here and there like Tommy Mo was good too and you know there were some great ski racers for sure but I feel like they they brought that structured team element to snowboarding and really tried to be professional with how they they worked with these athletes and that's great on the one hand on the other hand I feel like snowboarding is this um, kind of lost soul in a way it's like bounces between identity of you know the rich white guy ski hill thing and no we want to be hardcore skaters and and it just like that whole mentality I used to have the mentality of a skater I still do and I I feel like that's the cool part of snowboarding if somebody like Sean Palmer comes around and says I'm gonna go do that and then they go do it that's what snowboarding is and I feel like that's kind of been uh, dulled a bit and and my direct experience with the team is I, I had some of the younger in my later years, like six, seven, eight years ago, I had some younger up and comer kids that were on the development teams. And some of those staffers would, would tell me, or the coaches would say, Oh yeah, you know, they can't do whatever that trick is until they do this trick and this trick and this trick. We have a, we have a building block system. And I'm like, what are you talking about? If that kid wants to hit that kicker and do whatever the fuck he wants, what's the problem? Oh, well, you know, right? it's, it's like this. And I get it, I guess, you know, from a professional sports aspect, you think about confidence building and how, do, how does an athlete develop and what if they get hurt? You know, all these, these different things that come into play, which are, are pretty real and genuine and, and, uh, you know, appreciated, I guess, but that's not what the rebel skate side of snowboarding is. And, and the industry tries so desperately to hang on to that stuff. And it's kind of laughable, you know, back to my shit talking stuff. It's just kind of laughable that it's really a rich white guy sport. You know, that's what it is. And to pretend like it's anything else is, is, kind of stupid but it has that undertone and maybe because we weren't accepted at ski areas and the equipment was shitty and had to develop over time and ski ski companies didn't start making you know product until the product had already been developed in that ski construction direction so you know it's so easy to see why that element still exists but it's so stupid it's like it's a vacationer sport. It's an Olympic sport. It's not 
hardcore, gnarly. You know, when I think of like the coolest uh, non-mainstream snowboarder, I think of Lane Kanak because he's the fucking coolest guy ever and one of the most talented snowboarders ever. And most people, I don't know if you guys even know who he is, but he he's unreal. And he just um, spent years living in Mammoth and not riding the mountain, coming to Reno to hit rails and just do all this urban shit. And he's like, yeah, you don't need a lift ticket. You just got to go find stuff. And that, that element's really cool, but you know, it's like, that's not the sport because boards aren't right. going to sell based on that and goggles right. aren't going to sell based on that. In fact, goggles definitely won't sell based on the rail stuff. <laughs> so, right. you know, right. it's, uh, it's easy to see why that element has to stay in it and it's cool to hang on to it. But if we're going to have it, let's get real. Let's push it then. Then you need Paul. Yeah. Then you need to have alcoholics and pot smokers and people doing LSD <laughs> and shit because that's what it is. You know, that's. Yeah, snowboarding's cool. background and grassroots. Uh, yeah, we. It's all punk rock. The video on mushrooms in the 80s for a big snowboard company. And I can't talk about it because one of the guys on the trip will fucking flip out. Because he doesn't want right. people to know that he did mushrooms or something, which I don't get. You know, I don't fucking right. get it. I did coke, right. I did LSD, I did mushrooms. I smoke weed. I'm almost sixty. What the fuck are you guys gonna do about it? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, what is there to lose? Like that's part of all of what makes us who we are, and and so I don't know. I'm going off on a total rant about. You know, where I I guess snowboarding has has landed in today's world. And it's just kind of funny. You know, you get these people like Todd Richards are so, you know, emotional about how they call tricks or judge tricks at the Olympics. And it's like, you know, that's his job. So he has to, to and he's great at it. I, I love the way he, he presents it. But I just think the whole thing is just so phony. It's all so, so made up and, and just, you know, every kid at the top, you know, going to the Olympics, I bet it's way different in the para world because you guys don't have the same sponsor revenue and things like that. But it's like every kid is from a rich family. Every one of them. Look at the last, how many Olympics and all those those U.S. team kids are all from wealthy families and, you know, nothing against them. That's great that they facilitated stuff for their kids. But, you know, that contributes to making the sport unattainable and continuing the rich white guy image. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have, you know, our at least on our team, we have or have had in the past, you know, those athletes that come in that are, you know, mom and dad are their full on sponsor and, and, um, have kind of given them every opportunity where like folks like me, I mean, I was just a dirtbag snowboarder when I, when I was, uh, discovered, if you will. And, you know, I was that guy with a Mohawk that was drinking Mountain Dew all day, every day, eating airheads, pretty drunk most of the time, you know, party animal. I mean, I looked up to Sean Palmer at times. So if that tells you anything about my early days. Um, 
and had to, you know, grind for every last penny to kind of make it to where I am today versus those kids that, you know, kind of are, I don't want to say handed everything because you still have to earn podiums and stuff like that and work hard, but, um, definitely two different mindsets and definitely two different, um, uh, perspectives on how to get to the top and stay at the top. You know, I never have once felt like I was owed anything by the sport. Whereas you see these kids who, you know, I was part of the beginning where we had to fight just to get the sport into Sochi. And I mean, it was an arduous task, but we built it in such a short period of time to a point to where it wasn't going to be able to turn around and stop that they let us in. And these kids don't know that battle. They don't know what that was like. You know, we were spending hundred grand a year to go to competitions and all this other crap, uh, just for a hope and a dream and with no guarantee that it would be in the games. And, um, you definitely see it with these younger athletes coming in and they're like, Oh, it's a guaranteed thing. There will be a medaled event. Like that's what I, that's what I want. That's what I'm owed. And at the end of the day, it's like, no, you're not owed shit. At the end of the day, there's 15 other people aiming for your spot. So if you don't keep working, you'll fall off just like anyone else. You know, plenty of people in the past have, have come in with that same mindset. And where are they now? You don't even know who they are. I do because I was there. Well, it's it sounds like such a different world. And I know, you know, the beginnings of, of that team structure stuff. But I makes me think about the... The, the I'm I'm a hypocrite if I say you know if I'm talking shit about the wealthy kids and and how they're kind of not given but they have access they have way better access than someone who doesn't have money someone who doesn't have money can only hang on for so long you know I'm t- helping this um, Brazilian kid and he's cool his mom doesn't have a lot of money. They don't really have sponsors and they're, she's working her ass off to try to get the kid going and the Brazilian Federation helps and they pay for a lot of stuff, which is great. But, you know, a kid like that, if he didn't have the Brazilian Federation behind him, there's no way. And the U.S. team doesn't have the same business plan. You know, they're not a government funded organization. So it's a completely different mindset, as I'm sure you you both know. But I feel like um, I came from a, a wealthy enough family. You know, my dad was a retired physician and wanted to hang out with the kids and give us whatever the hell we wanted. And we had all kinds of toys and it was great. Um, but there was no team. There was no Olympics. There was, there was nothing. We had two events a year. When I got into it, it was not even two events. We didn't have any. It was the nationals in Vermont seemed like such an exotic place to go. And I went to, um, ski Cooper for, for the first, um, King of the Hill, King of the mountain contest. And, 1981. And that was super exotic. And then in 83, we had the first worlds. And so my point is that there wasn't really this whole system in place and a path to success. It was like, Hey, mom and dad, I want to do this fun thing over here. Cause I think it's the best, coolest, funnest thing in the world. And, and 
you know, will you guys help me out? And they were just so cool. They facilitated all kinds of shit and they didn't have any stake in it. It seems like the parents today have a huge stake in it because they get the glory of being on camera when their kid is on the podium or just competing, I guess. I guess that's what they're going for. I don't know. (laughs) So, Bob, I do have a question for you. Do you believe it was inevitable that we were always going to get here to this space with the growth of snowboarding? Yeah, because you look at soccer versus hockey. I'm going to say soccer versus hockey, where soccer is a global sport. It's the most you know popular sport in the world because all you need is a is a tape ball. All you need is uh you know a a round leather ball, right? Where where hockey is thousands and thousands of dollars for ice time for all the gear. As you grow, you need more gear. And, you know, snowboarding is, is more on that side. So, so as it moved out of the, the grungy uh, up and coming stage, I mean, it was almost inevitable that we were always going to get here, but I just wanted to hear your opinion on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great, um, great question and a great point that you made. And I feel like um, the industry in general again, is it, it was, I knew a long time ago when I was riding those winter sticks. And even before that, we, we were messing around with skateboards and they didn't work because the snow was too deep. And I had this Coleco plastic thing that didn't work either, but it was like, Oh, we, we want to surf in the snow. That's what we got to figure out. So when the first boards came around, a winter stick was great. I mean, that's, we kind of expected a a board to look like that with P-TEX on the bottom and everything. So when the, the woodies and the Sims woody shit showed up and the rocker crap that Tom Sims was making, I was like, what the fuck is going on here? This stuff is a joke. Are these guys like, these guys are definitely not skiers is what I, always thought I grew up skiing and I ski raced, but I also skateboarded. So I tried to see the value of both. And to me, it was super obvious that we had to have edge control. If we wanted to be accepted at the ski resorts, you had to have edge control. So the boards had to have edges. And I, I imagined a Rossi board way before, definitely in the seventies. I, imagined a Rosignol board. So, you know, I'm in no way surprised that it is where it is today. And I feel like it, it that kind of goes back to who get, who cares about stories I tell and who cares if Tom Sims or Jake Burton were first, because there was Chuck Barfoot and there was Mike and Mike Olson and Pete Sari. And there was, Chris and Bev Sanders, and there were, you know, all these other people out there doing things at the same time. That's what was so fascinating in the real early days was coming together for that first world championships and seeing 400 people, three to 400 people. I don't remember exactly how many, but it was a lot. And everybody just sharing the stories about where you're from and, and all the discovery. It was a lot of discovery. And that created instant camaraderie and instant bonding where I feel like you could see it then 
that this is going to be something big. As long as the equipment gets together, it's going to be big because it's way too fun not to be big. And so, you know, I, I just think it's, it's funny that all these people want to take so much credit for the history or for accomplishments. You know, like I said, I could say I was the first guy to do this and that. And, and sometimes I say it if I'm talking shit, but it, it's like, it doesn't really matter because if I didn't do what I did, somebody else would have done it. So, you know, so yeah, I'm not surprised at all. And I'm not surprised by the Olympic stuff either. You know, I didn't know when I was in Austria in 89 with those, with those clowns, the lift maintenance guys voting on the future of the sport. I had no idea what the true workings of, of the IOC are. And I still don't necessarily, but I learned a whole lot and especially working with Peter Carlisle because he's Michael Phelps's agent. <laughs> so he knows a little bit about the Olympics and, and I learned a lot too, just being around it. And I, it's so obvious that it's a business entity. And if there's money to be had through the exposure of a sport, why not? You know, and it was just a matter of getting to that point. So, you know, it's great. We all contributed and did something to get to that point, whether it was, you know, my generation or, or your generation, Keith, it's, it's all cool stuff. You know, that's, that's the, the theme to me is that we can all try to take ownership or credit or talk shit about somebody else and the way they did something, but the reality is it's all really cool. Somebody posted on old school snowboarders. I don't know if you guys are on Facebook at all, but there's an old school snowboarders page and somebody posted about 50 pictures from the 88 U S open that they just took. They were just spectators. And there are some really rad photos of a bunch of people I know, and they're all trying to identify who they are and, and to go back and, to that moment of being at the 88 open, I was trying to think, okay, that was the year I was riding for GNU, I guess. And, oh yeah. And so the euros were pretty strong at that point. And there's photos of Jose Fernandez and other people in the pipe. And, and it's like back then we, we hated those guys. They were so fucking lame wearing their stupid one piece neon suit. <laughs> That was so far from the skate culture and mentality that we had that we couldn't stand those guys. And now I look at those pictures and I'm like, man, Jose's like one of my really good friends. I just saw him in June in, in Austria and he came to the Tahoe event to the retro thing in March and he couldn't even snowboard. The poor fucking guys in so much pain. We were both standing there going, I'm like, yeah, I'm not riding either. My knees are killing me. And he's trying to do like all the stem cell stuff. And I'm like, yeah, fuck that. I'm going for the knee replacement. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor said stem cell stuff is a joke. <laughs> so, you know, but the guy made the trip all the way from Europe just to hang out for a weekend. And, and he's so cool. And here I am thinking, I hated that guy when he first came onto the scene because he was nothing but a big threat to me. Cause I knew I was right. a shitty snowboarder and he was really good. 
Right. <laughs> you said some. You said something a minute ago. You said, you know, who gives a shit? Like, I do. I'm one of those people who like. I really care care to hear these stories and speak to people like you because you guys made snowboarding cool. I started as a skier. I I moved to Utah when I was like 12 to live with my dad. And the first thing he did was put skis on my feet, take me to Deer Valley. And that was the coolest thing on the planet, right? And I really am so grateful for that opportunity. Uh, But I also never really fit in with the ski crowd. You know, I I was kind of against the grain my whole life, grew up the exact opposite of having, you know, say a father as a, as a physician and stuff. I was really humble beginnings when I lived with my mom, but I fit in much better with those snowboarders. So those early Warren Miller videos, like early little bits and blips you could get in, in magazines of these snowboard competitions that were happening. That's what fueled my fire, you know, and that's what like I wanted to snowboard from day one. And my dad's like, no, you're a skier. Anything you want under the sun, I'll pay for if it's skiing related. You want to snowboard, you're paying for that shit yourself. So after you only get a pass at Alta or Deer Valley, right? (laughs) Well, luckily, I was from Ogden. So, you know, Powder Mountain and Snow Basin were my two home spots back in the day. Well, in Nordic Valley, you know, the little podunk one lift or two lift mountain. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I was going with dad on the weekends, we were going to, yeah, say Alta or wherever. Um, but I wanted to snowboard and it was because of guys like you and all, you know, all the cool stuff I was seeing and, you know, little, little blips and, and Warren Miller and stuff about snowboarding that I was like, that's what I want to do. That's so cool. They're floating on the snow versus, you know, up to their chest in it. And those guys look like they're just having fun thrashing the mountain versus like, you know, kind of being stuck up turds that I don't really want to associate. And I was saying this at like 12, you know? Um, And so these conversations are so important to me because in a way, kind of like you looking at those pictures from 88, like it takes me back to a different time when, this wasn't even really an option for me. It was like, dad was like, you're a skier. You're going to like it or not, but either way you're going to ski. And, um, you know, I saved my first two paychecks to buy a snowboard once I got my first job and never touched my skis again, except for to sell them. And that made me definitely like a black sheep of the family and like against the grain kind of deal. But I, you know, my dad and I stopped go, excuse me, my dad and I stopped going to the mountain together from that point forward up until, you know, after Sochi, when I actually had done something with it. Hmm. Uh, so this stuff is really important to me, you know, I, it, I love hearing funny, those stories. Because you know, that just brings up the skier versus snowboarder debate, which where I grew up, I didn't feel it at all. I mean, I, that's awesome. A bunch of people beg to differ, but I personally, I just didn't really, it either I didn't register with me or I just didn't pay attention to it or I didn't hear it because I sat on tons of chairlifts with all kinds of people, whether it was on skis or snowboard. And I just don't, I just think it's a myth. The whole, the whole what year I snowboard, what year did they open Boreal and was it Donner Boreal and Donner were the first two. What year did they open those up to snowboarders? Uh, well, at, uh, um, Boreal let us up in about 1979 at, okay. at night, at night yeah. only. And 
then Soda Springs let us up on the weekends. So, because they were only open on the weekends, usually, I think they were only open on the weekends. And that was, they were owned by the same place, Boreal and Soda. And so I was like, oh, you know, we can't have those guys here on the weekends, so they can go over to Soda and have their place. So we had those two. And Donner Ski Ranch, I think, was sporadic if you talk to them um uh they norm would probably say we always allowed we never turned down money for a lift ticket and we always let them up. but i when i was um either a sophomore or a junior in high school so it was either 1980 or 81 um i was in a band and we played a gig at Donner Ski Ranch for a college ski race. And <clears throat> I brought my skis and my snowboard because in those days you never knew. And I skated up to the lift line and they wouldn't let me on the lift. And I told Norm about it recently. And he was like, no, no, real, no way, no way. We never, no, no. That, must be, that was a mistake. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. So... And I used to kind of go along with the Donner Ski Ranch was the first place to allow us up. But, and they probably were like on a full-time regular basis. But they Norm Sailor sold the place to some other guy. I can't remember the guy's name. And the year after he sold it, they for the Legends event... The, like the night before the event, I got this email saying that they were not going to let Norm on the property. And was like, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> this guy used to own the place and he's the whole reason why we, you know, the whole legends thing. And so I got really pissed off. And that's when I started to say, well, I'm not going to keep their secret anymore. <laughs> it weren't the first place. <laughs> So anyway, um, the, I'm trying to think of who else let us up. Mount Rose, uh, which it's now Mount Rose, but Slide Mountain let us up too. I started a certification program with Chris and Bev Sanders and, uh, in 1985 or 84, I guess, we started that, that program. Love it. Love it. Um, and also going back to one thing you were mentioning before was you were talking about shapes and styles of boards. And I've been so stoked lately. Um, Matt Sickles has introduced me to, uh, the elevated surf craft guys and, uh, and checking out some of their board designs and, uh, and what they have going on. You know, there's, there's other uh, manufacturers that have kind of brought some of those old surf styles back to life. Uh, what's your perspective of that? I mean, I imagine you love it. I imagine it's, it's really cool for you to see, uh, but kind of what are your thoughts on, uh, some of those old styles coming back to life right now? Uh, well, it's, um, it's interesting, I guess. I was just talking with a friend the other day about how ignorant I was about, uh, just about change in board shape and design. And I remember, um, telling him about a conversation I had with, with JG, John Gurnt, who designed all, all Burton stuff for years and years. And when they started making, um, I guess the supermodel and, and other taper tail boards and setback stance, 
I had a conversation with him and I said, yeah, you know, I just like the longer, the better. I got to ride at least a 165 and 175 is probably better for steep shit like shoots and stuff like that. And, and he just laughed at me. He goes, I don't know. You don't know anything about design. Like now you can just have these tapered boards. And I was like, what are you talking about? Tapered? No, narrower in the tail and setback stance. And you don't have to put all your weight on your back leg. And, and he sent me a board or I, or Dave Driscoll, I think, uh, sent me a bunch of stuff, but sent me a supermodel and I still ride that board now. It's like 12, 13 years old, 12 or 13 years old. And I love that shape. It's, it's incredible, but you know, I don't know if it's really the old shapes coming back as much as it is just people making surf looking shapes and, and I'm not really sure what, what the technology is anymore. Cause I'm riding a really old board now and, um, I, nobody's given me a free board in a while. So I, <laughs> I just ride with me and, uh, yeah, I've got a, I've got a nitro tree hugger. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of, heard of the tree hugger. It's part of their quiver line. I got it probably, maybe four years ago or something like that. And it's like a 149, but it's a pow board, big old fat nose, ton of taper, swallowtail. Um, and when I, when I was buying it, I was buying it here, uh, at radio board shop in Aspen. And, uh, my buddy was like, yeah, shorter, shorter on this board for sure. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, you know, 175, 180. Are you sure? Like that sounds really short. And he's like, just, just try it. And I was blown away. I mean, the nose is massive on it, but then the tail is super narrow and I couldn't believe how well it floated on pow. Um, it, I I'll tell you this, when you're dropping cliffs and stuff, you definitely want to land slightly nose heavy. Cause if you land bolts or slightly back foot, there's nothing to push against. So it just washes out on you. Uh, but I was blown away at how short that's it more like the old style, like riding a performer or something, you know? Right, a one a one fifty performer that has no tail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably only have like this much of a tail on that board, you know, and it's not much. There's nothing there. What cracks me up in this, you know. Again, I guess you really appreciate me being blunt, but I think it's kind of funny that that type of shape, you know. So it's all in context of you asking the question, sleep about shapes coming back, but. It really is pretty laughable to go to ski areas and, uh, you know, it can be an inch of new snow and all these guys are out there on their surfboards and I'm just going, okay, cool. I can ride bow on this too, you know. <laughs> Especially an inch, right? <laughs> yeah, and I I haven't really ridden enough of those boards. I was in Evo the other day looking at, I'm trying to think if it was that same model, but I don't think it was because it was looking at a nitro and it was probably their quiver series, but I don't remember the model. And it looked like it was probably a, I don't know, like a 156 that had a, you know, a nice taper tail shape and setback stance. And that's really all I look at. I'm not really attracted to a swallow tail board. I'm not really sure what the big deal is with having a swallowtail. Um, I mean, I 
messed around with all kinds of stuff back when I had my winter stick, which is a real taper tailboard. And we, we would put aluminum fins on them. We would mount fins on our winter sticks, take that skag off. And I remember thinking I had the best setup of all time because I put together the tri-fin, you know, because that was really popular in surfing. And I didn't know shit about surfing, but I just thought, yeah, I mean, that's like the powder will hit the two outside fins and then hit the middle fin and it's so perfect. It's so stupid because none of that stuff makes any difference i don't think <laughs> really maybe a little extra drag or something yeah slows you down <laughs> it's kind of like the serrated edges on boards what's with that you know I've right oh been yeah. running with that for so long and they're so successful with it but i have not seen a turn pow- turn ice to powder ad in a long time and and, right. and I love those guys at Mervin, but I just can't get behind the serrated edges. It's it does nothing but slows you down, right? Right, right. Well, when you're messing with like a full rocker board, I think it just gives you some contact points, right? Because otherwise, you're riding on this much of an edge. I don't know. <laughs> you know. I mean, that's another thing I just have no understanding of. My favorite board was the Burton Malolo. Um, the and I'm trying to think of when they changed the profile to all the early rise stuff and then the stupid seagull camber mixed camber crap. I hate all that stuff. I just I mean I'm a skier and I want to have good edge hold. Just I just realized the skis I bought five years ago, I was looking at the dimensions and I'm like, oh my God, they have 10% early rise tip and camber everywhere. Oh my, oh, I got to get rid of them. I got to get out of these now. <laughs> you raced, you raced downhill, right? The skis? No, no, no. Snowboard. Excuse me. Sorry. I'd raced whatever they had. Cause so downhill, like that went away at some point. Well, there never like, was why? downhill. Downhill in the beginning was about a 15 second straight shot at the at okay. the nationals and then the open and then they started to put a couple gates in i guess on suntan or at stratton but it was wasn't until i think um probably the 90s when maybe they had some super g's and world cups but there was never right. downhill Never proper downhill. Because I was talking to Mark Fawcett a while back about it. And I guess he's kind of said the same thing, more like Super G style. Yeah, the only real downhill that had all red gates (laughs) and had real downhill track was um, in 1986. And I put it on at Buttermilk. And I got the idea because I was the only snowboard instructor in Aspen at that time. And Don Rayburn was the mountain manager and he was a super cool dude. He was a really nice guy. And he was talking up the town downhill. Yeah, we're having the town downhill in two weeks or whatever. And then there was another guy, probably the race department guy. I can't remember his name, but he was also a really nice guy. And they just, they thought I was okay, I guess, because I was the snowboard instructor. 
And I just, one day I said, Hey, you know, um, if we did it like the week before the world championships or the week after, I can't remember what we did, we could get all these people from Europe and we could get all the best snowboarders to come here and let's do a downhill. And they were like, sure, you can do it. No problem. So I set up a downhill. We had like two or three training days and then had the race day. And it coincided with uh, Jake was developing the express board, which was actually probably the first real tapered tail Burton, but it was such a straight side cut. It was kind of a joke board, but um, the prototypes, he gave us all these prototypes and they had this uh, honeycomb core and me and Andy Coglin and Mark Heingartner and Chris Carroll, I, I broke mine immediately crashing at about 50 miles an hour. So I ended up racing on my cruiser and I don't know, I, I guess just the evolution of, of the board shapes has been a lot slower and a lot funnier than I think. Like I said, I kind of make fun of people when I see them out there on a not powder day on their powder boards. Like what's the, I mean, it's just for show, isn't it? It's just a step. Well, you can't ride switch on most of them. Yeah, I mean, we we that was again what was kind of cool about the early early stuff was nobody knew what you could and couldn't do, and so we rode backwards on we rode fakie on all those boards. You just had to lift up your back foot, which was now your front foot. Yeah, yeah. I think of those swallowtails, like I go out on them once in a while. I don't actually ride those nitros very much just because I've got some other boards that I prefer um, kind of complement my riding style a little bit better in the in the side country and pow and stuff. And But when I do go out on like a swallowtail, I am so deathly scared of catching that tail if I'm trying to ride switch at all that I I kind of avoid putting putting that thing forward at any, at any and all costs, you know, I'd rather take the tomahawk than pop up switch. If I, if I had to butt check somewhere, um, cause dude, this much, this much, and it's squared off and it's flat. And I'm just like, Oh God, I'm going to die. If I, if that thing ends up going downhill first, I mean, I've seen videos of guys doing it, but I'm like, I don't think I'm that yeah. good of a snowboarder. Sure. 20, 25 <laughs> years ago, you would have just done it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just would have gone for it and it would have been fine because your ability is, is just fine for it. Right. I don't know. I just don't think that the board, I, I still go after the, it's the pilot, not the plane thing all the time. Sure. Sure. So I kind of want to pull us uh, to the present right now and today. And, and I know that Matt has told me a lot about what's going on with the world rookie tour. I see you got the t-shirt on right now. Uh, t- tell us about it. What, what's the plan? Um, you know, what's the mindset? What's, uh, what's going on with world rookie? Oh, well, it's, it's, uh, my friends, Miney and Marco who own the tour and they're just, you know, cool, cool Euro dudes that have been in the scene for a long time. And they started it in 2006, I think it was. 
Um, so it's been going on for a really long time. They started with just snowboarding and it was a huge decision for them to add the ski element. And I remember having big discussions with them when they did, but it's probably, uh, I don't know, six, seven years at least since they started skiing. And then they started skateboarding a few years ago, like four years ago or so. And, um, I just, I fell in love with it from the beginning. And the beginning for me was a trip that, um, Terry Kidwell and Mike Ranquit and I went on to Italy, um, for a, some legends thing that this guy Dino Benelli put on. He's got the best museum of anybody. He's probably got the the most diverse snowboard collection of anybody on the planet. And it's, it's got a rental shop at the base of Prado Novoso ski resort. And we went to that. And then we had all this time in between that and the longboard classic, which is another really cool kind of legend style event in Austria. And I, we were trying to figure out what to do for the week. And I said, you know, these guys that I met at this, conference thing a few years back they own this world rookie tour thing and and we could probably just go there you know because they're i don't know they're an ishkel for the finals and we could probably just go there and i bet you they they'll give us lift tickets and so i called them up and said hey you know can me and terry kidwell and mike Rankwood come and hang out with you guys. And they were just so stoked. They're like, Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. They got us a hotel room and, you know, and I, I had met the Italian guy, Marco once, once or twice, but I had never met this, this uh, Austrian guy, Miney. And we meet, we meet at a bar at like eight o'clock at night when we showed up in town and immediately get into an argument with this guy about the Olympics just immediately. And he's like, ah, fuck the Olympics, fuck the FIS, fucking hate them all, blah, 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 blah. And he's super intense about it. And I just love that. You know, I love the argument. So I just like, oh yeah. Oh, well, I love the Olympics. I think it's great. (laughs) And so we end up having this argument that's developed into a really close relationship as far as just, He's like my favorite argument friend. We, we love to argue. Um, but, but these guys have done such a good job. We were so impressed from the moment we showed up because they treat the kids like top level pros where they, they get them all in the same room to eat. You know, they have like food is, is part of the deal. So they, and that's like, they don't tell the, the entrance ahead of time, but pretty much that's the plan is to get these kids together as much as possible outside of just snowboarding together. So on top of treating them really well with, you know, having a nice buffet set up for, for them, but also a cool place to hang out with different things, you know, the hotel that the, or the, the center where they had like registration and stuff had all these amenities, like a little bowling alley and stuff like that. So the kids could all hang out and do stuff. But then what the real clincher is, is they would bring in people 
to do workshops and they would do like a music workshop. So one year they had a, um, a, uh, a mentally challenged uh, group down the valley come up with like a punk rock band and a bunch of instruments and everybody, all the kids who wanted to participate in that workshop would get an instrument and then they worked the whole week on just writing a song so that it could be included in the, the video edit at the end of the week. Um, one year they had a, a chef show up and teach the kids how to cook with insects. And one year I did a history of snowboarding presentation and just talked about, you know, who I thought was, was important to the history and why. And one year I did a, how to be a pro snowboarder uh, presentation and told kids how to deal with sponsors and agents and all that kind of shit. So um, to me, the World Rookie Tour is something that is really important to happen here in the U.S., and it hasn't happened because I haven't done it. I did one event with Terry Kidwell in 2014, I think it was, or 2012, I can't remember. Um, and I'm going to do a skate contest this summer because I went to Austria to get dental work done this spring and got into an immediate argument. I hadn't seen Miney in uh, like five years. We talked occasionally on, you know, on the phone or whatever, but hadn't seen each other in a few years because of the pandemic. And within five minutes, we're arguing because he's so pissed off that the FIS wants to start doing bank slaloms. And he's been president of the World Snowboard Federation for a long time. And he's in the middle of all that stuff, but he hates it, but he loves it. And he loves to bitch and argue. And it's this big, intense thing. So we started to get into this big discussion about the Olympics and how they've ruined every sport that they've touched. And I said, well, you know, not skateboarding. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll see. You'll see. It's going to be ruined. And I said, not, I don't believe so because it's got such a low barrier of entry. It's only a hundred bucks to get into it. You don't need snow. You can do it anywhere. The cultural diversity is way bigger than in winter sports. It's just, it's a much, and it's had so many up and down cycles in the business and the cultural side of it that it's now this rooted cultural thing where I believe that there are guys my age that go and skate the same street spot every day and they don't pay attention to anything else except that street spot that they go to. And that's the culture that keeps it alive and keeps it different than, than it being this competitive on TV type of thing. And he, he disagreed with me and, and we kind of settled our argument that we're going to have to wait about 20 years and then see what happened. But I said, well, just to spite you and to prove you wrong and to keep the tradition of cool culture and skateboarding alive, I'm going to do a world rookie tour in Colorado next summer. And so that's my plan. And my selfish interest is, 
the kids, you know, it's for kids 18 and under. And a lot of them don't drive and they need a ride to the skate park. And so I figure the parents will show up and I'll get to interact with them at registration. And the, the event will be sponsored by my real estate business. So maybe I can get some real estate business out of it. There you go. Sick. Yeah. So that, yeah, man, that's a, you know, that's a mouthful and an earful and not really much useful information, but it's a really cool tour in the sense that if you look back at the history of it too, and all the top European snowboard names like Sven Dorgren, for example, I remember when that kid won the world rookie finals and he was just this up and comer kid that nobody on the pro side knew. And now he's pretty damn well-known pro supporter, Rupi Tonteri and, you know, all kinds of guys that, and, and young women too, that have come through that program. And it's just to me, that's keeping that spirit that, that we talked about earlier uh, going, you know, and maybe it's not important because it's funny, you go to those world rookie events and, all the federations are there, you know, the Swiss teams there, the Norwegian teams there, and all their coaches are there and they take it all seriously. But it's, it's cool because the guys running the event are pretty, you know, like they're pretty cool. And, and when we talk about, well, what happens when the parents start bitching at the judges and, you know, and I would just, I'm sure I would that's run happening. around. I'm sure that's happening. Oh yeah, all the time. Like all these people, I'd meet them at the at the beginning of the the week during practice and stuff, and and they are all real nice because I'd just be standing around at the bottom and hanging out, and and then I'll just be like, oh, you know, oh, this is so cool and this is so great. And then as soon as the competition's happening, and certain countries, I would say, are worse than others. The one country in particular appeared to be so laid back and cool, but they were so uptight when their kids weren't winning <laughs> and it was all, you know, the judging, but, but I would run around to those people and my friends and just be like, just tell them there's another contest next week. Like, shut the fuck up. You know, You'll, there's another chance for your kid next week. You know, you don't need to, to stress out about it. And that's the truth, you know, that there's always another opportunity. If, if you're in it, then who cares about what happened at this one? Even if this one was a big one. Yeah. Well, and if you're that wrapped up in it, are you doing it for all the right reasons in the first place? Right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the living vicariously through your kids and, oh, I was never the successful athlete, but here's this sport I used to make fun of that my kid got into and now he could go to the Olympics. Cool. Right. Sure. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's pretty intense and I understand it. I mean, I'm, I'm in the business or was in the business side of it and I understand what's at stake, but at the end of the day, you, like you said, what are you truly in it for? And if you can't, I guess it's, it's a matter of, um, I guess, accounting, you know, just balancing the sheet and just saying, you know what, you could show up at the Olympics and fall and, and who cares, you know, and, and 
like Lindsay Jacobellis has her legacy and he's overcome that, that terrible legacy, but it's, it's such a joke, you know, that people put so much into that and that she did and that the agents did and the sponsors do and on and on and on and on. The media, media. And, and the media, I was just on my ride to the airport this morning, we were talking about politics and I was telling my friend that, I, I don't blame the media at all because they're they're a for-profit business and they're trying to put things out to keep people's attention, but they can't help the stories coming their way. You know, it's right. they they're in control of that stuff so much. They're in control of how they tell it, but right, it's not like they can create a political story, although there's all kinds of bullshit conspiracy theorists out there that think that stuff, but it's just not reality. And I, I just feel like snowboarding is uh, just, just the same kind of thing where what are you truly in it for? Like I said, I never see anybody on the bike path. I never see, I mean, Right. I ride around my neighborhood when it's snowing out or I'll ride in heat or I'll ride in every day, every condition. I don't care because I like it because that's what I want to do. It helps me stay alive and keeps my mind free and all that. So, so that's what I do, but it blows me away that other people don't and that they're all a bunch of posers. People spend all this. I got a bunch of expensive equipment sitting oh on the wall or in the in the shed, right? Oh, it's insane, and and I know so many people who are, you know, into these activities, and they're good at it, but they're not really that dedicated. And right, I, and does that make them worse or better than than the next person? I I don't know. I just think that. That this whole thing, you know, back to the World Rookie Tour, it it's a way for me to maybe have a slight bit of connection and control um, or ownership of what I used to believe I had more ownership of. And I know I don't. I know it's totally out of my control and that the brands and the, the sponsors and other people are are driving the direction of these things. And, and that's why I am critical of, I am critical of the way the media presented snowboarding. You know, that's a perfect example of they, they didn't know snowboarding was coming along, but it did. And it was something that they could see that they could show the world and they'd get feedback from it. So can't blame them for showing it, but you can absolutely blame a media company like ESPN for investing in an event, exploiting the athletes for that event, and not looking to the athletes and saying, you know what, we owe them something. And I and I know they never felt that way because I heard some of those executives and the way they behaved about it. They they really took it like the for-profit business that it is and tried to squeeze every, every margin that they could out of it. And I think that the, the necessary cost of athletes had to be minimized for them. And maybe they were, maybe they weren't lying when they talked about their expenses, but I believe that the legacy of 
the X Games just shows that it's clearly profitable or was, maybe it wasn't the last few years and that's why they sold it. But, you know, they had the opportunity because they owned the hours. That was the big difference between the Dew Tour and the X Games, you know, that the, the competing for uh, sponsorship dollars, you could see in their decks, they always talked about how much TV coverage they were offering their sponsors. But ESPN always led that, you know, it was like 176 hours of programming or something like that. And it was because they had the reruns, they had ESPN2, they had all these different ways of putting it out there before the internet, and they could attach a pretty nice price tag to their sponsorship. But what they failed to do was say, okay, let's take some of this and build it into our business model. So maybe we need to charge even more so that we can we can afford to waste our time building up fans. You know, they, they didn't do pro they did profiles on Sean Palmer in the early days because they didn't know what would rate. They didn't know what would work. And I'll never forget going into the post victory interview with Nate Holland after he won it the fourth time or something. And, and we used to make them would go into the, into the bar, you know, cause they take over that whole, that whole hotel there and would go into In the hotel, Aspen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sit there and wait for the, you know, the runner to come get us for the interview. But it was like, we figured it out after a year or two that, you know what, let's make these fuckers buy a shots, you know? <laughs> so, so, I love it. Hey, you guys got to buy a shot. And the first time I see yeah, yeah. the, the lady kind of looked at me and laughed at me and she's like, oh, come on, let's go. And I go, no, we're not going up there till, till you buy some shots of tequila. <laughs> and she looks at me and looks, he just won the X Games. Hook it up. Are you serious? And Nate's like, fuck yeah, I'm serious. Knowing <laughs> Nate, that cracks me up. <laughs> so, so they get her shots, and you know, that was our thing for a couple of years. And then this this one year we do our shots and we go up there. And this producer that I remembered meeting uh back from when they did a profile on Palmer. And she was really cool. She was in the room. And I said, hi, Esther, how you doing? She's like, hey, how you doing? And Nate's a little bit, I don't know if he was buzzed or just high from winning, but he was just like, yeah, so I got to win this thing like four or five times before you guys do a profile on me. And she just, without missing <laughs> a beat, she just kind of looked up, looked at him, looked at me, and she goes, honey, profiles don't rate. And I was like, what the hell? I, I didn't understand anything that she was talking about. And okay, whatever. We do the interview. We leave. I go back to, to my condo and we've got the X Games on. And that was the year that they, one of the first big air years, I guess. And they had Todd Richards and, and uh, the actress Rachel Bilson sitting on a couch at the bottom of the big air jump. And it all came together really quickly. I figured it all out really quickly when I was watching it because they had the, um, they, they had the out of country voting or something like that. Like you could call in a vote. They had judges 
Tom Zekas was the head judge and he was on hand just in case there was some kind of a judging controversy. But Rachel Bilson had a voice in the judging and so did Richards. And it was like, oh, I get it. So this shit rates, but profiles, no. <laughs> you know, and oh, let's bring an actress that somebody might recognize in. And let's, uh, you know, get, bring the novelty of phone up voting or something because that was pretty with i guess the voice or something was probably just taking off back then and you know so you can't really blame the media for trying to figure out what's going to stick but i kind of felt like here here these guys are investing all this time and money into producing this event why can't they make something out of these athletes instead of always making it a, a face-off between one, Sean Palmer and Drew Nielsen or Sean White and Danny Cass or whoever, it was ridiculous to me because they're clearly setting up a zero fan base thing because it was like, right. you like Sean White or you don't because you're not going to hear right. from Steve Fisher, that's for sure. You're going to hear from Sean White why he didn't win and why this this who's this joker over here on a sims board from summit county that just beat you we don't want to talk yeah. to him like he's a nobody over here 100 percent. Fisher wins twice and they still don't want to talk to him <laughs> right man it, it's interesting and I'm, I'm sure i mean it still is back then it was and and today it is as well um one thing that you hit on earlier that that resonated um you know the fact that that people aren't aren't out at the mountains like you expect them to be that aren't out there that say they are, uh, you reference posers. I think that entertainment today, you know, these things right here are, are really dulling people's passions, right? Unfortunately, I, I think that the, the, um, the amount of access to information, the out of, amount of access to easy entertainment where I can sit down, uh, the ability to order food to my house, to order whatever I want, it, it's all there, right? So it's, um, it's going to be difficult and, and the people that stand out from here on out are going to be those uh, one in a million type people. And it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. Another thing you said at the beginning that I really wanted to bring this back to as we, we wrap this up, something that really resonated when you went on that trip this morning, that guy cut you off and he flipped you off and you know how you react in that situation is critical and the way you reacted is it's definitely the way I react is, man, how does this affect me? You flipping me off right now that that affects my life zero, right? Why let it affect me? Why let it affect the rest of my day? And I want, I, I want others to feel that I want others to be able to go out and, uh, you know, you make mistakes. People make mistakes. That could have been a big accident. You could have been hurt. Um, but, he but realizing <laughs> he could have been hurt. Anybody yeah, could have been 100%. right. But, but, but but not letting that affect you and continuing on your day and 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 having a little grace is critical in what's going to pull us through this. So well, this this crazy thing. Called I life. mean, I appreciate that, but I also am. It's kind of not true because it did affect me enough to tell you about it and to sure. you know, reference it in in context to what we're talking about. And I just feel like, um, you know, the 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 pointing to the phone as, as an example of, of some of the issues we have, that's also an easy scapegoat in a way, but I agree. 
Okay. I think one of the things that like, it goes a little deeper than just saying, you know, you have access to all these things. Um, I, I think that's true. I think that we have the mind power or, or self-control in each one of us to be able to choose whether or not we're going to be addicted to that. And maybe I'm, 100%. maybe I'm giving human beings too much credit, but I think people are smart. You know, they're smart enough to go, oh, if I sit here and do this all day, my girlfriend was saying, I had to delete Candy Crush because I just, I, you know, I couldn't stop playing it. And I can't re personally relate to that. I can't really, I mean, I'm addicted to coffee and I like weed. Sure. But, but I, I can't really relate to, I look at the phone all the time. I use uh, social media. I say I look at it because I'm trying to build my real estate business. But somehow I'm, in, I'm totally enthralled by it. And I think it's just amazing to me the interaction of the way people talk to each other on, on these social media platforms. Um, I think that, that there's definitely an issue with hiding behind the keyboard, so to speak. hundred percent. You know, I, but that also is a little bit of a phony thing too. Cause I guess my bigger thing is two points with the phone. I went hiking behind my, my parents' house last winter when it snowed enough to do these lines that I had never really seen before. I was like, Oh my God, how come I never did? Oh yeah. We didn't have 30 feet of snow. And so I did a little shoot and it was nothing like super easy, super fun, but you know, it looks kind of cool. It doesn't look gnarly or anything like that. But if I post something like that up on social media, which I did, it'll get a couple hundred likes pretty quickly. But if I just post a picture of me or, you know, a picture of, I don't know, just some random picture of a tree or something like that, 50, 20 people, 10 people like it or something like that. Sure. Or even just a picture of the line prior to riding it. Like people are like, oh, cool landscape, but they don't realize you're actually headed up there to go rip it. Yeah. Right. Well, like I, my point, though, is that it's so easy to fake it. You know, I'm not doing right, anything in right. gnarly. I'm an old guy. I'm, bro I, you know, I'm, I, I feel so good with my left knee replacement. I'm absolutely going to get my right knee replaced in April. And, you know, so I'm not doing anything crazy. I know I'm still a better than average snowboarder out on the mountain, but that's not saying much, you know, there's always a, a thousand people better than you. So who cares about that? But you can cheat so easily with a phone. <laughs> it's, well, I would oh, say with I the industry phone, kind of, you know, it didn't even have. To yeah. That. And it's, it's like, Oh, cool, man. That's so rad. You, and it's to my point earlier that I don't see anybody else hiking those things. You know, very rarely do I see people hiking around in waist deep powder because it's work and it's a hassle and they'd rather skin right. up. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that part of it. And then I, I just think that the, the, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to be easy on the phones. I'm trying to be easy on the phones because it's just too easy of a scapegoat. <laughs> 
I would say the problem with the industry and the phones and social media is there's so much emphasis on your social media in the sense of you could be a very well accomplished athlete, do all these amazing things, do all these firsts, and it doesn't mean shit to anyone if you don't have a hundred hundred plus thousand followers for someone to be able to attach their name to. Um, and that's kind of my thought on like the whole social media thing is like, great, you're a great athlete. You've done everything, but where's your, where's your fan base? And it kind of is twofold. If the industry isn't helping you create a fan base, the sponsors aren't helping you create a fan base. How are you supposed to get the fan base on top of that? Other than maybe you're a hot chick and you can, you can make things look good in different ways. But, um, you know, I'm a guy, I'm an older guy at that. And sponsorships are tough. You know, I'm, I've been at the top of the game from the very beginning. The industry doesn't necessarily help me in that regard because unless I've got a hundred plus thousand followers, cause I'm doing kooky shit out there or I'm a hot chick, no one really pays attention to what, what I can offer them, uh, as a brand ambassador. So that's kind of my take on the whole phones, phone, you know, social media and that kind of thing. Plus I think a lot of people are just enthralled with you know, sitting there swiping. I would rather be out there like you be out there well, doing it because I love it. Yeah. Not because people are going to pay attention. To I, I think the other point I was trying to bring up too is, is the male toxic ego stuff that has permeated every part of our society. And it's no different. Like who cares if you hide behind a keyboard? What's the big deal? So what? So you're going to say something to somebody anonymously. So what? And I'm going to hear it anonymously. Oh, wow. You really ruined my day. And it, it makes me think of how many times I've heard people, someone unfriended me um, because I made a some kind of a, a comment about their mom. And that was that, you know, that's it. And I, I've had people tell me stuff about my mom that didn't know my mom, just know, knew me or didn't even know me or just wanted to say something mean. So they wanted to say something about my mom. And how many times have it, like such a, such an old, uh, example of, of, how people will react and I don't get it. So what call my mom, a cunt, a whore, a caller, anything you want. I don't care because she doesn't care. Sure. <laughs> she's sure. dead now, but I mean, when she was alive, well, she would, she'd be like, oh, well, well, why do you feel that way? Because she was so cool and open. <laughs> she was like, you know, she was a really unique person in that way. And I feel like that's a bigger problem in our society is we're all trying to out cool each other. And somehow uh, we, we, with social media, and this is maybe to your point, sleep about the phone being a negative thing that we now have such easy access to be able to compare and to, you know, say, well, look, sure. They screwed up. Look, Oh, did you read that story about those people on the airplane? I would never have done that. It's like everybody has such great insight, but in the moment we still see all these fools acting like fools everywhere, but everyone's an expert and nobody makes that mistake except for the fools. 
Hey, Bob, on that note, we got to wrap it up, brother. We're past. Yeah, we're past that two hour mark. We love you. We really appreciate the time. I hate to cut you off. That's no big deal. I'm I'm a rambler, so that's the way it goes. No, you're good. It's fun, man. It's fun. But, you know, with my my final thing that I'll say is that I think that's the biggest problem is that we just got to be a little bit softer. We all got to be a little more sensitive and a little more welcoming to things that men in general repel. You know, they don't want to be hugged or kissed or talk about their feelings. And and it's all coming out anyway. So you might as well throw it out there. That's sure. I couldn't agree more, actually. I agree 100%. All right. Well, <laughs> hey, Bob, thank you very much for being on with us today, man. I'm stoked to have you involved uh, with us here on Thrash Talk. I'm stoked to have you in Shredding Sassy. Uh, it's been great to meet you. I can't wait to do more Twitter spaces with you. I hope you and Matt get one going. I know you and Sickles have talked about potentially doing one. Uh, I agree with uh, Keith when he said earlier uh, you mentioned no one cares about you doing a podcast, and I agree, I care. And and no one cares until they do, man. You get a couple of them out there, and it's going to be off to the races. We might have lost Keith. Oh, there he is. He's back. Keith, you're back. Um, so I, I'd be stoked to listen and, uh, and just really glad to have you here today. Last thing, you have those presentations prepared right now that you use for the World Rookie Tour. The presentations you were joking around about earlier uh, about the history of snowboarding through your eyes and uh, the presentation on how to be a pro. I would love for you to come and do that in the sassy discord at one point. Sheen screen share it, have some fun. It may have changed. Your mindset may have changed uh, since then, but uh, it it might be a fun experience just to get in there, joke around, have a good time and, uh, and rip a little bit. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't looked at that PowerPoint in a while, but I know I have it somewhere and I can dig it up and yeah, I'd love to. Awesome. Awesome. Share it with us, brother. We'd love to see it. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever, whatever comes our way. And I don't know, we'll see if a podcast is in my future. I, I got to sell houses, send me some business, especially. in (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what we could do. Right. I I know people around here. I work the state, you know, the whole state. (laughs) Sweet. Awesome. Thank you again so much. You're an absolute legend, like absolute honor. Uh, for both of us to be able to sit down and and uh, chat with you today, I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate you taking the time and interest in listening to me ramble. Hundred percent. I'd do this all day if I could. Yeah. Well, I- all right. We'll end it with that. Have a good one. Yeah. You. you. Thank you. Have you. Good.